You ever long for God to do something really big in your life? Is there, is there a prayer that you have been praying for some time and God just seems quiet? It doesn't seem like he's answering that prayer. Imagine how Martha and Mary felt as, they, as their brother Lazarus was sick. And they watched as he grew worse every day. They sent for Jesus, but he didn't arrive on time. And Lazarus died. They knew Jesus loved their family very much. And so can you, can you imagine their heartache as their brother takes his last breath and Jesus didn't come? He didn't make it there on time. And yet, yet they had enough faith to believe that even at this point, Jesus could make a difference. We're told, uh, we, we, as, as we look at the, at the story of Martha and uh, Mary and Jesus, when Jesus arrives after Lazarus' death, there are a few things that we can learn that I think will help us in the moments that we long to see the glory of God show up in our own lives. So today we're going to be, just for today, looking at the book of John, chapter 11. And John chapter 11 gives the account of Jesus's most dramatic and most powerful miracle, I believe, in his entire ministry, raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the tomb for four days and his body was beginning to decompose. Because this miracle is not mentioned in the synopsis gospels, liberals have argued that it's not really a genuine story. We find it only here in John's Gospel. Now, while it may be difficult for us to explain why the other Gospel writers omitted this important miracle, it also created huge difficulties to explain why John included it if it was not genuine. Why would he do that? As as a, an inspired writer of the gospel. That's, that's an even greater uh, thing for us to wonder about. Well, the story reads like an eyewitness account, because that's what it is. And so it would be absurd to think that John would have fabricated such a, a, a fantastic story and presented as a true event, knowing that others could easily have refuted it if it never happened. So the Synoptic Gospels, they also relate two other resurrections from the dead that Jesus performed, which John omitted in his Gospel. In fact, we see in Matthew chapter 9 and verses 18 to 26, we, we read of the ruler's daughter that Jesus raised from the dead. It's nowhere to be found in, the, in John's Gospel. And in Luke chapter 7 and verses 11 to 17, we see the widow of Nain's son is raised from the dead. And John doesn't write anything about it. 
And so we can't, we can't know exactly why the inspired writers included some, some incidences and they omitted other incidents. We don't really know that. What we do know is that they, they wrote as they were brought along by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit led them, they would write what God wanted them to write. We, we do not need to conclude that the events were fabricated. Jesus had left Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He was ministering across the Jordan River where John was at first baptizing, according to John's writings here in in chapter 10 and verse 40. And it was there that the word came to Jesus from Mary and Martha that their brother Jesus uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. Now, the other disciples that were with Jesus, they knew why they were there because there were threats that Jesus was going to lose his life. And so, so they escaped from there and they went, they went on the other side of Jordan. And, and so when you read through the entire account, and we're not going to read the entire chapter, but when you read through it, you, you see that some of them were a little bit concerned anyways with going back to where, where Lazarus had died because they knew that there were those who were looking to kill Jesus. But John emphasizes more than once that Jesus loved Lazarus as well as his sisters, Mary and Martha. But then contrary to what we would expect, rather than rushing to Lazarus' side to heal him, Jesus stayed two more days, two days longer in the place where he was. And so by the time that he arrived in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And all of this is setting the stage for a miracle that Jesus is going to perform. Now, some commentators think that Jesus was was only one day's journey away from Jerusalem. Well, in in this scenario, Lazarus would have been been dead shortly after the messengers left to go to Jesus. So even if he had gone immediately, Lazarus still would have been dead. But he stayed where he was for two more days, the Bible tells us. And then on day four, he arrived at Bethany and he performed a miracle. But that that reconstruction of events seems at odds with the sisters' complaint that if Jesus had only come sooner, their brother would not have died if he had come sooner. So for some reason, it, it, it seems like there was a possibility that Jesus could have been there if he would have chose to come. So others think that Jesus was much further away. Lazarus was still alive when the messengers got to Jesus, but but he died just before Jesus left to return, which Jesus knew supernaturally. If you look at verse 14 in chapter 11, it tells us here in verse 14, and then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's already dead. Jesus knew that. So in either case, Jesus could have spoken the word and healed him from a distance. We, we, we saw him do that at another time. You remember the nobleman's son in John chapter 4 in verse 50, go your way, your son 
your son lives. And so, so Jesus healed without even being there. So he could have even healed Lazarus in the same way. But Jesus makes it clear here that, that he has some higher purpose for this sickness and death, namely for God's and his own glory and for the disciples and the sisters to increase in faith. Look at verse 4, chapter 11. Verse 4, chapter 11 says, So when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then jump down to verse 15. Verse 15 says to us here, And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then jump on down further to verse 26. He says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then jump all the way down to verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so he delayed going immediately, which resulted in Lazarus' death and in the sisters' grief over the loss of their brother. Now, because he loved them, he allowed them to suffer for greater purposes that they did not understand until later. So for us to summarize this lesson here, although we often can't know why we suffer, we always can take our troubles to Jesus and know that he loves us and that he will work for our good in his time and not in our time. So many times in our life, as we go through, through those times of suffering and trials and sicknesses of ourselves, or loved ones or whatever, we, we wonder, why is God delaying doing anything? There are five practical lessons we can learn from this uh, chapter here this morning. First of all, the Lord, the Lord allows those he loves to suffer. He allows us to suffer. Three times here in John, either directly or indirectly, emphasizes the close loving relationship that Jesus had with these three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In, in, in chapter 11 and verse 2 here, it says, It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so John identifies Mary as the one who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, interestingly, John doesn't relate this event until chapter 12 and verse 3, the event where, where Martha anointed Jesus' feet. But he talks about it in chapter 11. And, and, and so that, that's interesting. Uh, perhaps... Perhaps writing decades after Matthew had written in chapter 26 and verses 6 to 13, and Mark had written about the same event in Mark chapter 14 and verses 3 to 9, and, and reported these events, perhaps for John it was just a widely known event that, that, that Mary had done that for Jesus. And so John assumed that his readers were already aware of it. And so he, he mentions it here, but then he talks about it in chapter 12. But Mary's anointing the Lord showed her love for him. 
in Jesus' tender feelings for her. Also in chapter 11 and verse 3, the, the messenger reports to Jesus, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And then John adds in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then follows the surprising connection that we have in verse 6 when he says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So John builds this whole thing for us to understand that, that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and, and he had tender feelings for them and, and compassion for him. And, and in our minds, we would think he would rush right away to take care of this situation. But he stayed two more days. He waited. He didn't go. And so John is saying that Jesus' special love for these three was his reason for letting them suffer. Isn't that so different than the way we think often? We suffer and we think, well, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Maybe there's something wrong in my life. That's just Satan whispering on our ear. But, but this was a demonstration that Jesus loved them. His love did what was best for them. But Jesus' delay in coming didn't feel like love to Mary and Martha, much less Lazarus. They didn't have the advantage of reading this chapter yet. <laughs> it was happening in their life just like it happens in our life. We, we don't know why. We don't know the cause of Lazarus' death. We don't know why uh, he was sick, but it probably involved some pain and, and, and possibly some discomfort. And the sisters helplessly watched their, their beloved brother go downhill, but their, their suffering did not mean that Jesus did not love them, but the reverse. He loved them, so he stayed two days longer in the place that he was at. Now, this refutes the, the popular but spiritually destructive heresy of our day, the teaching that it is God's will, that every believer should be healthy and wealthy. This falsehood is, is flooding into many poor nations where it entices those who are suffering from, from disease or, or poverty with the false promise that if they will believe in Jesus, he will give them miraculous healing and financial success. And the false teachers themselves flaunt their wealth, which they have because of the gullible people contributing to their coffers. And when health and wealth don't happen in their, their lives, they say, well, it's because you have a lack of faith. You don't have enough faith. You just need to have more faith. You need to claim it, name it, and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to imagine a more heartless and cruel doctrine than that. And yet many in our country today get sucked into it as well as we watch them on television. Of course, the false teachers don't mention the fact that they get sick and die at the same regularity that everybody else does. They don't live forever. But the Bible is clear that godly suffer, and their suffering is not due to a lack of faith or a lack of God's love for them. Jesus loved Lazarus very dearly, but he said, we're going to wait a while. 
we're going to let him die. You may wonder, why does he allow difficult tragedies? Well, number two, we can't always know the why of our suffering. Why, why is often the first question that pops into our minds when we have suffering going on? Why this? Why me? Why right now? I thought everything was going well. I was living for you. I was doing what you wanted me to do, God. Why is this going on in my life? Did I do something that I deserve this? Is God punishing me in my life? Several years ago in a letter to supporter, John MacArthur told about a pastor and his wife from Utah who had traveled to California to visit the master's uh, college to enroll their oldest daughter into school there at MacArthur School. And their second oldest daughter planned to attend also in a year or two, and so she was along with them on the trip, and their youngest son was with them as well. They also, they also had brought along two Italian foreign exchange students with them, hoping to have some opportunities to witness to them on the trip that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Well, they got to the campus and they looked around the campus they, and, and planned to attend Grace Church where MacArthur is the pastor the next morning. But as they drove away from the college that day, their car was broadsided at an intersection by a large van traveling at full speed. The force of the impact catapulted the two girls out of the back of the car killing both of them instantly. The car quickly caught fire, and their son and the two exchange students were badly injured, and they were rushed to the hospital. The van had struck them on the driver's side just behind the front seat, and so the pastor and his wife only had minor injuries. MacArthur hurried to be with the couple at the hospital when he had heard about it, and they were shocked and shattered by their sudden loss. But the father, amazed and encouraged Pastor MacArthur when he said, My sweeping thoughts is this. Isn't God good? That he took my two daughters who knew Christ and loved Christ and spared the two Italian boys who have not yet been saved. Isn't God good? Amen. I'm sure that those parents didn't have the why question answered then, and, and now probably more than 25 years later, they probably still don't know why the accident had to happen. But in that moment of tragedy, they were able to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness in their lives. Someone has said that, that rather than ask why, a better question for us to ask is what? What can I, what can I learn from this trial? Or, or to ask how? How, do, how does God want to use this trial in my life to change me and to make me a greater servant for him and to be able to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, we can't always know the answers to these questions since God often works in ways that, that we, we just simply don't know about. 
But, but I want you to consider three avenues here. First of all, is the God word. The suffering may be to display God's glory. Maybe that's why we're suffering. Jesus said in verse 4 of our, of our text, he says here to them, this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We saw the same thing with, with the man that was, was born blind in, in chapter 9 and, uh, and verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. They were saying, you know, who sinned that he, ha- he, he was born this way? His parents? Does it shock you that God would allow a man to be born blind and live many years in that condition so that God would receive glory through his eventual healing? What about God taking all ten of a man's children and all of his material possessions and his health so that God would be vindicated before Satan and the angels in heaven? What about that in the story of Job? If that sort of things bothers you, then you don't have a big enough view of God. And that was the answer that God finally gave to Job. For several chapters, God hits Job with the question like like we see in, in chapter 38 and verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I mean, really, when we think about it and we complain to God and we cry out to God and say, why are you doing this, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I'm trying to do this or that? And God says, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And in chapter 40 and verse 2, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who who has created all things? Who are we to contend with the Almighty? And finally, in chapter 24, Job replies in verse 6, Therefore abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So although Job was the most righteous man on the earth in his day, he had to learn that God's glory and God's purpose was far greater than any suffering or loss that Job endured. And we need to learn that lesson as well. John Piper writes and says this, Love means giving us what we need most, and what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us to the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? The answer of John 11.4 is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing and admiring and marveling at the, and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. It's not about us. We like to think it's about us when we're suffering and we're going through heartaches and, and difficulties. It's all about God's glory. And then there's the self-word. The the suffering may be either constructive or corrective. The first time that I ever preached on John chapter 11 was over 40 years ago, when our third child, Jeremiah, was just a baby. I think he was nine months old. 
I was struggling through some hard things that we were going through at the church at that time. Struggling through some things about God and why God was allowing certain things to happen in, in our lives and in our ministry and all of that. And then all of a sudden, our baby boy, Jeremiah, nine months old, became sick. Jeremiah had been sick for a few days, I, I, I think somewhere probably a week or so, something like that. We had taken him, Melanie had, had taken him to the doctor, and, and uh, I think a couple of times the doctor said, oh, there's nothing wrong with him, it's just a cold, you're just, uh, you know, a new parent, you're just overreacting in this type of a situation. But Mer Melanie knew in her heart that there was something wrong with our little baby. Well, as the week continued, Jeremiah continued to worsen, and, 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 and so Mer Melanie was, of course, beside herself. And I remember the Sunday morning that we went to church, and, and I preached that Sunday morning. We came home from church, and Melanie was making lunch, and I was tending to the needs of Jeremiah, and I was changing his diaper, and when I grabbed his legs to bend them over, his back didn't bend. It was stiff as a board. I picked it up, and just raised him right up and his head stayed down and, and it was just stiff. We quickly took our um, other two children to someone's house. I can't even remember now. I don't think it was Grandma. Pardon, Jenny's. Yeah, my sister Jenny's house. And uh, to watch Melanie got into, well, we took off for the hospital in Greenville and um, <clears throat> they did a spinal tap and Jeremiah's spinal fluid was white as milk and just as thick as could be. And they said, we need to get him to Children's Hospital in Dayton right away. And so Melanie got in the in emergency squad with Jeremiah, and they took her down, and, and I was left there in the parking lot of Wayne Hospital in Greenville, Ohio. And my heart was aching, and I was thinking maybe I'd never see my boy again because I'd heard about meningitis and how serious that could be. I remember taking care of a few things, uh, have the other kids taken care of, and I went on down to Children's Hospital, and they had him in, uh, in, in a bed, and they had IVs in him and stuff in his head, and, and they had to strap him down because they couldn't allow him to pull things out. And there he lay, nine months old, just helpless, and could tell he was... In, in pain, and there wasn't anything we could do. We couldn't pick him up. We couldn't hold him. We couldn't do anything. And the doctors would just say, well, he made it through another day. That was the only hope they could give to us. While we were there, was there two other babies that died of meningitis while we were there? There had been an outbreak of meningitis in the area at the time. And, of course, the doctors informed us that because of his high temperature, he could have brain damage. He could have all kinds of things wrong if he lived. And I remember praying and asking God, why? Why Jeremiah? Why us? He hasn't done anything wrong. He's just a baby. And as far as we know, we, we hadn't done anything wrong. We were doing everything that we could to, to walk with God and search God and share God with others. But because we loved our little boy, we had to watch as the doctors and the nurses did their thing to our little boy, even though he was obviously in pain and uncomfortable. 
Hebrews 12.10 tells us that God disciplines us or allows trials or allows suffering to come into our lives for our good so that we may share his holiness. We had a tremendous ministry in that waiting room with other parents who did not know Christ as our Savior. And we got to share Christ with them. And one couple accepted Christ as their Savior and found out later that they were baptized in a local church. And all because we had an opportunity to be where God wanted us. The writer of Hebrews adds in chapter 12 and verse 1, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nonetheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes it's just because God wants to build his character in our lives and draw us closer into his holiness that he allows us to suffer and go through trials. Or it may be other words. The suffering may be to bring comfort to those to other Christians or even to, to be a witness to non-Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul, Paul says that God comforts us in all of our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So our suffering may be used as a witness. As happened in the death of Lazarus, many of the friends who who were there to comfort Martha and Mary saw the miracle that Jesus performed, and they believed on Jesus. Look at verse 45 in chapter 11. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Even later, many of the Jews who heard about this miracle and saw Lazarus were were putting their faith in Jesus. Look at what it says in chapter 12 in verses 9 to 11. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. That was the religious leaders of the day. Well, we got to kill this guy too because people are believing in Jesus. In her book, Johnny, Johnny Arcasentata tells of the tragic diving accident that left her paralyzed from her neck down. I imagine probably most of us know the story of Johnny. If you don't, you you want to pick up the book, Johnny, and other books that she's written. But she chronicled the agony that she went through in the aftermath and how eventually she came to trust in Christ and submit her life to him. She ends the book by telling of speaking at a rally to hundreds of young people and her hope that scores of them would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then she added this. She said, "But, but, but I will be pleased if only one person is drawn to Christ. Even one person would make the wheelchair worth all that the past eight years have cost. That was many, many years ago. She is still using her suffering to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. So this story teaches us that the Lord allows those he loves to suffer. And also, we, we, we can't always know the why 
of our suffering. Although we sometimes can figure out the what God wants to teach us or the how he can use the suffering for his glory, but we might not always know the why. But then also we can always take our troubles to Jesus. I I don't know how the sisters knew where Jesus was. I I really don't know. But somehow they got word to him in in verse 3. It it just says that, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And we can see three things here regarding this message that they sent to Jesus. First of all, they didn't demand that Jesus come and heal their brother. There's no demand on Jesus at this time. Many, many say, well, you just need to, you need to cry out to God and demand that he heals you. Have faith and, and command him to do that. In fact, they didn't ask him to do anything. They just humbly presented the need to Jesus and left it up to him what he was going to do about it. So often that is different in the way we pray, isn't it? We go, to, we go to Jesus and we have our idea of what we think needs to be done and it doesn't happen. And what do we do? We get discouraged. We get downhearted. Where if we go to Jesus and just say, here's the situation, and leave it with him. He already knows what he's going to do anyways. Secondly, they, they didn't claim Lazarus' healing by faith either and command Jesus by a word of faith to do as they they said. And the health and wealth heretics, the people that are around, tell people that that we can command God, just speak the word of faith, and and it's already done. Just do that. And so many, even good Christians, get sucked into that whole idea of just naming it by faith, claim it, demand, command Jesus to do this. That is nonsense and is presumption, not to mention the height of arrogance. God is the sovereign God of the universe, and he has plans and purposes that we can't even begin to fathom. Who are we to contend with God, the one who created all things? I've heard such false teachers say that that we should never preface our prayers with your will be done because that reflects a lack of faith. No, it reflects submission to the sovereign God of the universe. Third, we take note that the sisters did not say, Lord, he who loves you is sick. They didn't say that. That was true, of course. Lazarus loved Jesus. But rather, they said in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is sick. They didn't appeal to the Lord on the basis of anything in them or in Lazarus. Lord, you should do something because Lazarus loves you so much. But rather, they spoke to him on the basis of his great love. George Mueller, the godly man of faith and prayer, set forth these conditions for prayer that, that, that I have found helpful. Number one, ask only for that which would be for the glory of God to give us. Only ask what it would, 
that which would be to the glory of God to give us. Ask in dependence on the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, expect it only on the grounds of his merit and his worth. Not on my merit. Not on my worth. When I cried out to God, what have I done? I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to do this. The Bible says that we don't even know our own heart and the wickedness of it. Number three, separate from all known sin. And so, in other words, we should examine ourselves and see if there's any sin in our life that we need to separate from and get out of our life and get right with God. The, the Puritans back in the day of George Mueller, they used to talk about keep a short account with God. In other words, don't let sin go un, un, unconfessed. Number four, believe that God is able and willing to give us what we ask him. Believe that he's able to do that, because he is. We're not commanding him. We're not demanding. We just, we just know he can do whatever he chooses to do, even if it's an impossible or the improbable. And then finally, continue to pray. Expect God to answer until the blessing comes. Keep praying. Don't stop. So take your troubles to Jesus. Number four, and I'll, I'll try to speed up here a little bit so we can finish. Uh, always interpret your suffering by God's love. Don't interpret his love by your suffering. So many times we do that, don't we? Well, God must not love me because I'm suffering. I'm in a lot of pain. I have a lot of heartache. I've already pointed out the emphasis here on Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Love always seeks the highest good of the one loved, and the highest good for all of us, as John Piper pointed out, is not that we be healthy or wealthy, but that we get a bigger vision of God's glory in Christ. That is what we need in our life, is to know God in a greater way. Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata made, made this um, amazing statement about her accident. She said, God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. In other words, had the privilege to have an accident like she did and be paralyzed from her neck down. She was a teenager when that happened, I believe, wasn't she? Yeah, 55 years ago when this happened. God engineered the circumstances. Not everybody gets the privilege of going through what I've gone through. She said, I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and even joy. She was interpreting her suffering by God's love, not interpreting his love by her suffering. And then finally, that's how we need to do it, but finally realize that love sometimes involves delays, that 
that we can't understand at the time. The sisters didn't understand the Lord's delay, but, but both of them blurted out the same complaint that they must have said to one another over and over again, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We see that in verse 21. And, and there, when, when it's Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now look and compare that to, to verse 32. And then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's like they rehearsed it. They talked about it. They were wondering why he wasn't there. They couldn't figure out the reason for the delay that had resulted in their brother's death. But, but, but as we've seen, the reason for the delay was Jesus' love. By delaying, they would see more of God's glory in Christ and know more of his power. They would grow in their faith in Christ. The Lord's deliberate delay was out of love, although they didn't understand it at the time, and neither do we. And so the Apostle Paul writes to us and says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. There's much in Scripture about waiting on the Lord. If he answers us instantly every time, we would not recognize our need to depend on him, would we? God never delays because he is indifferent to our need, or he's too busy, or he's away on vacation. And so Peter exhorts us to cast all of our anxiety on him and then reassures us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, because he cares for you. Do that, cast it all on him because he cares for you. He loves you. You are special to him. So never doubt his love, even though you don't understand the reason for his delaying. So here we learn from the delay of Lazarus, resurrection was a, 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 that Lazarus' resurrection was a prototype of ours. Through it, we see that although we all die, one day we will all be raised. If Jesus could raise a decomposing body from the grave of Lazarus, won't he, he won't have any problem raising our bodies from the grave. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We also learn that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life, and that by believing in him, we will never die eternally. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
A woman still overwhelmed with grief approached her church on a Sunday after her mother had died. And just outside the door, a seven-year-old boy met her with tearful eyes. He looked up at her and he said, I prayed for your mother. And then he said, but she died. For a moment, the grief of the woman wanted to just hug him and cry right along with him. But she could see that he was seriously disturbed because he thought his prayers had not been answered. And so she silently prayed for wisdom. And then she said to that little boy, you wanted God to do his best for my mother, didn't you? And, and as he was sobbing, he nodded his head slowly. Well, God answered your prayer. His best for her was to take her home to live with him. The little boy's eyes brightened right away. And he replied, that, that's right, he did. And then he ran off to meet his friend, friends and was totally content that God had taken her to heaven. So although we often can't know why we're suffering, we also can take our troubles to Jesus and know that he loves us and he will work for our good in his time, not our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us this morning to be able to gather here together at the beginning of this new year. We look over the past year and we see many ways in which you have blessed us, many joyful things that we've experienced, but we also see some sorrowful times, some painful times, some losses. But Father, we know you love us, and we know that you have a plan for our life. And as we look forward to this coming year, we have no idea what this, this year will hold for any of us. No doubt there will be some who will suffer, who will go through dark days, trials, and heartaches. Help us, Father, to be content knowing that you love us. You have a special love for us. Your son died for us, that we might have eternal life. He's preparing a home for us in glory, and one day he's coming back to take us home. But until that time, he is interceding on our behalf before your throne. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to endure whatever it is you bring across our path. And that through enduring, we will be drawn closer to you and you will be glorified in an even greater way. And we will see your glory and see you in a new light. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.